And we are tonight, ladies and gentlemen, talking about memory, chunking, consciousness, and apparently now critiquing the school system, which I'm all in favor of doing. <laughs> Always up for that. This is my guest, Manny, and I know that you, your background is in psychiatry. Yes. Clinical psychiatry. And you have a broad range of interests, and we're going to touch on those today. I, I welcome the opportunity. Thanks for having me on, Adam. You're welcome. So, let's talk a bit about memory first. Give a general idea of what it is, <clears throat> what it does, and why we should care about it. Oh, <laughs> memory is everything. Um, I like to uh, start any discussion of memory off with a broader model of memory. Uh, if I'm moving my hands, that's a memory. Because if I went in and erased the part of your memory, the muscle memory and, and the programming that said, okay, fire off here, fire off here, then fire off there, wouldn't be moving. That's exactly right. You know? And when you start that broad, everything about you is actually memory. I like to think of, um, there's uh, the model that they use in engineering is perceptual control theory, um, where you have uh, perception, um, comparison, and action. Uh, I've been, uh, I'm writing up a new model, and it's not like I'm, I'm reframing the model to, 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 to kind of talk about the uh, chunking again in a different way, where I say it's recognition, representation, and a choice between reaction or re uh, reaction or response. Reaction being dropping into your habit system. Now, all of this is memory. Recognition is where you're digging into your, your unconscious mind, like your, auto, your, automa your automatic pro programs are running and looking for a comparison of what matches in your, in your memory bank with what's out there in reality. Now, representation, some people uh, in perceptual control theory, they map this to perception. Suddenly in your, um, I like to think of it as like a big IMAX in your brain. One of the, um, if you're lucky, <laughs> if it works out right, one of the files in your uh, memory matches the current environment at, at one level of abstraction or another, and it gets projected onto your screen. Um, and now that's your consciousness. You're like, hey, I'm, I'm in, uh, uh, to use an abstract example, if I say bank, and you're, in your brain, your unconscious riverbank is coming up, and then bank with money is coming up. And at some point, I limit the constraints, and you have a certain amount of certainty where you're like, dude is talking about robbing a bank, not running down to the river and stealing water. <laughs> you know, And so that's on your big screen now. That's the representation part of memory. Now, once it's there, you have a feeling about it, and that's that consciousness. That's that... Um, that error management has come to your attention for a reason. If your autopilot was handling it well, it would have not popped into attention. It would have just gone autopilot. When you're in the shower, you're not sitting there thinking about every aspect of the scrub until the water starts to make humans do. Yeah. Which is why I suppose some people cannot extemporaneously speak about a topic, but they may know all of the answers on a quiz or exam because the mm -hmm. questions are bringing the information to the forefront of their consciousness. Yes, and if it brings it into, um, into um, 
representation in a domain in which you're not comfortable using the superliminal aspects, the actual words, then you end up speaking in vague, abstract terms. And even as you articulate it, you end up either speaking in um, in self-conscious instead of self-aware terms. Okay, so if I'm if I'm trying to like when I'm talking to my grandma, I'm speaking in French, and French was my first language, but my French is no longer as elaborated as my English versions of my mental models. So I was speaking to her, and it's more conscious, more self-conscious, not not conscious in a good way. It's more it's more perfunctory and it's i'm not able to signal the affect i'm not able to be as affectionate as i would want to be because the words i'm using are taking up more of my working memory and the picture on my imax is a bit pixelated to use that metaphor further and i'm sure you've heard of global workspace theory yeah yes and sir and you are probably aware of the fact I've done some work for Bernard Bars, the one of the major proponents of the theory. I was not aware, but I'm excited that I heard that just now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, are there any ways in which your view of memory differs from it? This would be one of those examples where uh, jostle around in my recognition because I, I wouldn't be able to articulate it now i'll probably wake up in a couple of days at three in the morning and call you about it <laughs> um, it hasn't emerged yet if a way that i'm aware of um one of the problems that i have uh, it's not really a problem one of the challenges that i'm working through incrementally i figure i have about 40 more years to solve this is that uh because i've taken a curiosity-based non-academic route from my traditional psychiatry training um, sort of to use Hofstadter's, I've juiced it. I've jumped out of the system with my models. Uh, juiced, not, not juiced it. Dyslexia is a beast. <laughs> I don't have dyslexia and I'm not making fun of people with dyslexia. Um, by jumping out of the model, a lot of times it goes back to that problem I mentioned earlier where I'm discussing something, but with vague terms and metaphors that I've bumped into that have worked, but that aren't necessarily matching the current um, domain-specific words of expertise so i'm not necessarily able to compare precisely how some of my stuff is different than slash from the leading thinking so i just kind of i i hover a question mark over my head <laughs> when when you ask that i i want to learn bar system deep more deeply and and continue to um before I speak about, well, mine differs here. No, you idiot, you don't understand his well enough. Okay. <laughs> you know? That's a prudent thing to do. So, going back to what memory is and what can be done with it, what we want to do with it. I yeah. am aware of memory palaces, of various chunking techniques, many many mnemonic devices. Why exactly do those work? They work because you, uh, it, they bring things into consciousness in a visceral, three-dimensional way. Um, like, to uh, give an example, I, I, I like this example as a way of demonstrating how adding more 
depth, more richness, more bringing more senses into your mnemonic makes it work better. In medical school, they had a bunch of Latin root words, Latin names for diseases. So a mistake we often made is that we learned the first letters of something and then you get to the test and they've listed every microbe with the same first letter and your mnemonic system collapses. <laughs> you know, so what I would do is I would double lace my mnemonics to learn my, my bugs. I I took one mnemonic. He bought lager beer for Chapel Hill parties and I went to medical school at Chapel Hill. So this was context relevant. Uh, now that gave me H influenza, Bordetella pertussis, lager, beer, Bordetella, or L was Legionella, for uh, was Francisella tularensis, uh, Chapel Hill, and poor Formonis. The, the bottom part, now this is illustrative, the bottom part wasn't in my visual mnemonic, and 20 years later, I still always struggle with the bottom part. The top part, though, I put in a second layer of mnemonic, and this is sort of a controlled study by accident that I did out of laziness. Um, I, I came up with the visual. The second layer was in flu, a coughing cow, speaking French and doing karate. And then shortly thereafter, a uh, a helicopter caught on fire and dropped to the dropped to the ground. That, that was the visual mnemonic that I used. And people are like, what the hell? Uh, the H was H pylori, helicobacter pylori. So helicopter. So when you get to the test and there's like six things with H, you're not in hell. Uh, so, in flu is H influenza. Uh, actually, there's two in there. He'll go back to Pretoria and H influenza. Chapel Hill parties. Actually, as I'm as I'm talking to you, this is crazy. As I'm talking to you, I'm pulling back a 20 year old memory, so I'm geeking a bit because it turns out that my mnemonic worked twice as well as I thought. So, he brought was uh, Bordetella pertussis. Uh, so, in flu, a coughing cow is whooping cough, which is caused by Borden is a cow with the ice cream commercial. You, you see how basically by pulling memories out of my brain that are visual and silly, I'm, I'm, I'm laying it on top of the other one. So he, he bought lager beer is Legionella. <laughs> yeah, so um, let's see, L lager beer and beer was Influ a coughing cow speaking French and doing karate. Now karate, when you say the word karate in your semantic space, you're pulling up iconically Bruce Lee. And the B was for Brucella. Speaking French was Francisella Tularensis. Um, Influ a coughing cow speaking French and doing karate. Uh, and then the helicopter was the H. pylori, which was the other one, falling in the field. So you see, by having those two layers, I remember that there were 79 bugs to remember on the test. I learned it all in one night. Now, when you memorize the words in one night, this is where the chunking kicks in. The chunking allows you to hop to the next level of abstraction. If I'm preoccupied with the literal level or the terms on the ground, I'm not seeing and I'm not getting the emotion in the second layer or the third layer. By memorizing those all in one night, for the rest of the semester, I'm not sitting there freaking out every time the professor brings one up. Am I going to be able to remember this, et cetera? It's the same way as when you see a child that has a learning problem in school and they're super nervous and you're making them read out loud and they're reading out loud and all they're thinking about is, how do I sound? Am I getting the words, et cetera? Then you turn around and you ask the child right after this, this torture session in public, what was the moral of the story? F you. F you was the moral of the story, you torturing bastard. <laughs> public humiliation was the moral of the story. Um, but 
in chunking, when you lay down one layer of abstraction, your brain is able to do that part automatically. Now your working memory is now free to hit the next layer. Okay. Like when I'm sitting here using words with you, you're not sitting here thinking at each word, what does that word mean? You're thinking of the words and how they're articulated with each other. And you're looking at my idioms and you're retrieving idiom memory. So that's each level of abstraction. Now, beyond that, at the layer beyond my idioms, you're able to sit here and think about you're basically you're trying to infer my intention and that's how knowledge transfer works. What is it that this guy has in his head that he's trying to say between these words, these motions, uh, a spatial expression, a lean? What can I pull about his background based on what I see behind me, etc., or what I've read about him on the media? You bring all those things together to decrease the uncertainty about any signal I'm sending to you. And that's the end goal in that minute, in that moment. That's the information you're trying to get from that transaction, nothing else. This is something I've discussed with people who are skeptical of speed reading. Of course, you don't comprehend much of anything if you're going one word at a time. In fact, you'll understand absolutely nothing. You have to read in full sentences, and you can even move on to paragraphs and later to pages. Not to yeah. say that is easy. But it is possible, and in fact, your comprehension will likely improve. Yeah. Yeah, the person didn't write the book for you to see a kabillion words. The person wrote the book because they were sitting somewhere with a burning idea that they want to inject in your head. If you happen to want to take it in with semicolons and commas and how the paragraphs are laid out, you may very well end up what a friend of mine calls, he's like, I prefer to stay an informed literal. Which means I've read what you said. I understand the words. If you quiz me about it, that's good. And I will argue to you to death about sort of the fundamentalist level of interpreting Jesus walked on water. Sure. Uh, I suppose that's all fine and good. Although with that example, you'd have to read it in Koine Greek. Because I'm sure it suffers through translation, as everything does. Now, I'm going to go back to Hofstadter on this one. In his book, Surfaces and Essences, what he explained is that when he wrote the book, in order to get the reader to the right intention, he, in some cases, instead of doing a word-for-word -word translation, he changed entire uh, narrative, uh, like anecdotal paragraphs and such. There's one part where he said he uses a subway in, in the English version because, you know, a New York subway, we, we all have been introduced to that through the culture, but in the Paris example, in the French version of the book, in order to evoke the same semantic space, they use something entirely different, an entirely different an uh, anecdote. Yeah, and that's basically the purpose of any transaction is to bring the person around to a space. You know, it, it's to communicate an intention. Yeah. If I have to do it through a piece of music, if I have to do it through a piece of sign language, if I have to do it through my demeanor, if I have to do it through a gesture, it's still a symbolic interaction that, to use, uh, what is it, ostentative uh, inferential communication. Now, this is another piece of perceptual control theory. I saw a great video. I'll send it to you later. Uh, trans-empirical inference. You and I are sitting here exchanging information, but 
once we have a certain amount of rapport where you trust me and you're not waiting for me to pull out either a knife or a club to hit you over the head, we're we're communicating in a different way. We're not we're not you know we're not we're not sitting here across from each other where everything that I say you're calculating the most dangerous version, checking for safety and checking for your weapon. Once we've moved beyond that, you're pulling back your own memories. We have rapport. We assume we we're both speaking in the same with well first of all that we're sharing a value system where we're headed towards the same goal so we're in a cooperative mode now then every signal i put out there you're going to search your parallel signals to see how we have alignment in past experiences or how our models of where we're trying to get mapped together did i go too tangential i do that sometimes why not <laughs> I've noticed it's all right. It's all relevant. So yeah, far. pretty much. Yeah. It's all connected. I don't worry about it too much. You know what I mean? Um, at the end of the day, if I'm somewhere where I, I have a specific and narrow outcome, then I'll narrow my thinking to that specific domain, load up that test set to use... Um, lateral prefrontal cortex metaphor, um, I, I'll use that jargon. If I'm talking to some docs, I'll stay in the um, informed literal <laughs> to go back to that that frame. I, I'll use their wording because if I jump into something like heart resonance or coherence or neural field theory or something, they, they vomit their guts and the big pharma company shows up and tells everyone shut up, you know? So at the same time, if I'm talking to a group of kids, you know, I'm going to use the metaphors that fit their map. But at the end of the day, when I walk away, what I want is that we've both in that period of time shared a set of models where we both have shifted our, our, our models a little bit closer to what each other think. Now, there are a couple quirks to memory. There's a story about a rich man who would get drunk every night, hang out with a homeless guy. And over the course of a couple of weeks, they became good friends. And they had adventures and good times. But when he was sober and saw the homeless man, he thought, <clears throat> well, who is this person? How do I interact with him? And it's partially the result of being drunk but that applies to other states as well, any alteration in consciousness. So consciousness affects how memories are retrieved or what ones are <clears throat> most likely to come to the forefront, which ties into what you were talking about. You're in doctor mode or you're in talking to kids mode or talking to whoever. You don these different personas. So it's like multiple personality light, and in multiple yes. personality patients, we even observe differences in physiology. Some yep. have diabetes, others don't, some really crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, the model that I've adopted for that is uh, when you take perceptual control theory and you, you shift it a bit and to another domain, you have identity theory. In identity theory, when you hit a hurt certain level of abstraction, what you have is memories are stored in identities. An identity is actually a goal. It's it's a meaning goal. Now, when someone walks into a particular environment, and this this has a, a, a large amount to do with the 
you know, I multiple personality disorder has been rebranded to dissociative identity disorder. So it's a failure to integrate multiple identities such that, you know, they share memories between each other effectively. Um, now, integration is part of the maturation process. You do the individuation. If you go all young, like you do the individuation so that you, you have these elements of you that you're comfortable with. You're not self-conscious and you're not defensive. And you become aware of your shadow functions, the stuff that you're projecting onto other people that you wouldn't interact with. And then you kind of combine that information, that knowledge between them, you know, and in any given situation, you become aware that this guy is making me, you know, and to use the homeless example, when I'm sober, maybe my, I'm so much in my, uh, my snob persona, you know, no insult to snobs who happen to be wealthy and don't like homeless people. <laughs> when I'm in that persona, it's, if I'm, if I'm at that persona in a certain level of concreteness, when I see someone that activates my shadow, I'm going to go into projective mode. I'm going to project the negative emotions onto them instead of realizing, oh, shit, a little bit of a roll of the dice. I could have been that guy, you know, or that guy actually represents my tendency to wish I wasn't stuck at um, the firm doing press releases in front of cameras, et cetera, all the time, because he's hanging out on the corner drunk and carefree. And I'm working on a, um, you know, an ulcer and a hemorrhoid. <laughs> um, so, there's like multiple thoughts in my head, so I'm trying to stay on the on the one track at a time. But at the end of the day, when you develop a certain amount of integration, you're able to be aware that you have these multiple personas in you, and that some of the ones that in in certain ego states you might lower in value have just as much value and relate to them. Now, when dude is drunk, his brain is probably retrieving different sets of memories and he's hanging out with dude and he's in shadow mode. <laughs> they also say that people, when they're being, uh, when people are off cheating uh, or being um, like cheating on their wives or whatever, during that whole time, they're functioning in shadow mode because usually um, the model I think of is Elliot Spitzer. You remember like the politician who during his daylight function, he was super prosecutor of prostitutes. At night, he was super supporter of prostitutes. <laughs> you know, you, um, if you don't integrate those things, and actually, I'll give you another example. Like with the whole uh, Ashley Madison site, you're going to find that a lot of your concrete thinkers are all up on the Ashley, Mad Ashley Madison site and the very things that they proselytize people against the hardest during the day, Duger, that conservative congressman, all those people. The Ashley Madison data dump gave you what people really like, you know, because it dumped all the data tables, including looking for threesomes, looking for domination, looking for um, interracial relationships, whatever. The beauty of this data <laughs> is that if you map these things to the people's persona, I bet you dollars to donuts, you end up with these people having a fetish for the very things that during the day they push down the hardest. Yeah. I would say that homophobia is almost always the result of latent homosexuality. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can't think of any other reason to hate it or rail against it. Unless yeah. you dislike Liza Minnelli. <laughs> you know, anti-Barbara Streisand. Yes. Yeah. Now, actually, with the homophobia, what they found is that the more visceral the homophobe someone is, the more aroused they get by homoerotic porn. Yes. So we, yeah, so we have scientific 
evidence to what was pretty commonsensical all along. Yeah. yeah. Now, another example to use a race based um, model, because nowadays everything is about race in our culture, um, you know, because it's that memory has been reactivated with, you know, the last year in the media because conflict sells. Um, but what you want to do is, well, what I like to do is I think about, uh, this is a little bit of rational choice theory, which I'm not really great at, but I find useful to dip a toe in every once in a while. Um, if you think of humans like cells, okay, if you use that metaphor, the, the humans that are uh, humans with low self-esteem tend to be the ones that use the group as a mechanism of, of certainty for self-definition, okay? I, I'm a white guy. Therefore, even if I'm the poorest white guy, I'm better than that black guy. Even even the black guy that's president, I'm still better than that bastard. You know, if if you can use that concrete thing where you in-group yourself with a group that has a higher value, and then you reduce um, a person from the out-group to the lowest value and eliminate the elements that make them go up in value, you're able to assure your sense of self-worth. You know, people with low self-esteem do self-enhancement through downward regulation. They criticize others downwards. People with high self-esteem do aspirational self-regulation. They're like, look at this guy. I aspire to be like him. Now, if you think of humans like a bunch of cells, and you take out all the complication of the narratives we use as an excuse to, to get out of reality, <laughs> you know, to go into uh, ideas, you're, you're, you're lower your lower, the self-identified lower-ranking members of any reference class become the border guard. Hmm. You know, now psychologically, if you imagine them as cells, and you imagine that the cells in the center are your more prototypical and therefore more appreciated cells, because subliminally a group centers around a leader that has the prototypical, the archetypal group characteristics. They, they value that more. That's most attractive, you know, like marketing, European beauty, the thin, the whole thin gravitating towards thinness and, you know, whatever. So that's your prototypical element. Now, on the edge of that group is a person that through their self-esteem and through selective attention has ranked themselves as being not necessarily aligned with the prototypical. They're so self-conscious that they've lost the focus on the purpose of the group. Whereas the people with the high self-esteem within the center of the group are moving the group in the direction of the group ethos, the group values, the group goals. Mm -hmm. The people who are on the fringe and perceive themselves at, as at risk of being outcasts from the group are about asserting the group boundaries. You don't belong, you don't belong, you don't belong. Guys, I got this, don't worry. I'm not letting anyone in the club that doesn't meet our standards. I. I because I know our standards well, because I, I perseverate on them because I constantly worry about being kicked out of the group. <laughs> okay, so that's how the, the, basically the self function works. Now, I can tie all this back to working memory because I, I want you to understand why. Identity threat is based on the fact that when someone has lower certainty in their working memory models and they clamp down, they don't like to update their models for fear that when they redo the models, they might end up outgrouped. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is the fixed versus growth mindset discussion. When you go to a person and you're giving them feedback, if this is someone that worries that your feedback uh, is perceptual control theory, they worry that at the end of the feedback calculation, it might be that they no longer work as border patrol, you know, to use a loaded metaphor, that 
no way in hell they're updating their stuff. Like, no, I haven't. I have not gotten the memo yet about the new calculations of social class. Screw you. Get out of here. <laughs> you know. And I, I imagine that in most cases, being part of a group is is typically something that people just do. And for instance, people born in Wisconsin rarely are Hindus unless their parents were from India. So they're Protestant just by birth, and this is something they identify with because it's a necessity to get along in their community. However, going outside and saying, well, I identify with this subculture. And for instance, anyone can enjoy a type of music, but not everyone is going to don the attire associated with it. They're not going to put on tie-dyed shirts if they like the Grateful Dead, or black everything if they like metal, or suits and ties for classical. Yeah. And this ties in with an upcoming discussion I'm having about Pierre Bourdieu, the French sociologist, about consuming culture in order to appear a certain way, in order to satisfy a persona. You're pausing like you want me to say something about it. <laughs> oh, that's just the way I talk. You say, okay, I'm listening. Born Sorry. and raised here in the South, and that explains my cat's prejudice. <laughs> oh, yes. Does this have any ties with Daniel Kahneman's Kahneman, fast and slow thinking, the distinction he makes between the two. Yes. And let, let me let me digest. Well, let me do two things. First of all, I want to go back to a comment you made. And I was like, you said here in the South <laughs> and you, you talked about the, your, your racist cat. <laughs> but you're in England. <laughs> She, well, she's a black cat, so she's. But you're in England, and I'm and in I was England. like, he doesn't have a southern accent. But then I was like, wait a minute, is is the South a universal metaphor for racism? <laughs> do you do you understand like the cognitive dissonance you just activated in my head just now? I'm like, I did not pick up his accent at all. I I could, and then I was like, wait a minute, when we were adjusting the time, I'm pretty sure he, well, no, he was in standard time. But didn't you say you were in England? <laughs> no. Okay, I'm, I'm having to... You don't have a southern accent. No, although a friend of mine from New York seems to think I do. But to New Yorkers, uh, everybody sounds like a bumpkin. Okay, well, okay, well let me separate two concepts. I know now. I, I have a call later with someone from England. There you go. That separates that. Number two... Okay, that, that resolves the cognitive dissonance. So I'm good now. You don't have a southern accent. No. My parents and are both Midwesterners. Okay. Both from Michigan. Okay. Okay, so I'm okay with the racist cat now. I've resolved that, that metaphor. I get it. <laughs> Where are you? I am in north central Florida, Gainesville. That explains the racist cat. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Okay, no, you you just watched me like sort out like eighteen metaphors in real time because what for a bit I had pulled in the model that you were in England because I got off um, planning an England call earlier, 
which kind of put me in that frame of reference. This is frame blends. Now, that actually will work well with the Kahneman transition even better. <laughs> um, so Kahneman's models are basically that you have your initial model that gets activated. Okay, now, a lot of people, they go into that frame and this is the functional fixedness. Once they've activated a particular model, they filter the reality through that model and force everything to fit in. And the tendency to get upset when you tell them easy on the model, back up, do a little cognitive reappraisal, do a little reframing and take those representations off your IMAX, so to speak. They don't like to do that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so you just watch the weirdness of my brain where I actually enjoy doing that, <laughs> you know, a lot. And it's, um, it's, you know, in a lot of cases, there's, there's, uh, this is where reactivity kicks in uh, and sense of identity and, and public humiliation, whatever. On a show, I have no problem being like, holy crap. Yeah. I messed that up. Let me look at, let, I go curiosity. I'm like, what caused me to think he was an inquit? So then I went through my whole thought process, but that's a whole lot of working memory that most people don't like to do either in front of a teacher in public or when they perceive that they are in danger that at the end of the thing they will lose face or social status. And something that a few studies have confirmed recently is that vocalization helps with recall and with thinking. Yeah. Even though there's a quite a stigma against it here in the West, you're generally perceived as insane if you're talking to yourself. Yes. <laughs> and as you were talking about earlier, we have these neuromuscular memories, we have memories throughout our bodies, and something I was reading, because I was smoking a cigar, was on the interpretation of dreams. And the first portion of the book, <clears throat> Freud talks about how people perceive very minor alterations in their body, say like a lung ailment or a heart ailment, and they dream about it. Someone with lung problems, even fairly minor ones, later confirmed by a physician, might frequently dream about suffocating. Someone with heart problems may die or dream of dying violently and suddenly. Not to say that every dream like that is a sign of disease, but yeah. this is something that they observed. And as I mentioned in the podcast with Christine, when we were talking about cryonics, is Gestalt and Reichian therapists have noticed that people can store, and I put quotation marks around the word store, memories in their muscles, bones, any part of the body that's connected in some way to the nervous system. So they may remember something traumatic that happened to them, and then suddenly... Ah, the tension in their neck, or their back, or their shoulders is suddenly gone. At least that's the hope. I'm leaning more and more towards that. Um, where I... This is Kahneman again. <laughs> where I hit a wall with it a lot of times is an impulsive reaction due to my medical training. And realizing that I hit the wall with no good empirical reason, but because Western medicine uh, has helped me a lot to push beyond that in my thinking. Um, 
going back to, and I'll send you the video once again for the perceptual control theory and how you retrieve memories, it shows that at each level you retrieve memories and the memory, each, the way you retrieve a memory is based in large part on, I'm thinking insula in the brain, but on, and I don't want to say emotional and have people go with the whole idea of how emotion works and pull up all that. But there's a signal that tells you what the situation you have walked into is. Now, based on how angry or how much of a threat or how scared you are in any given situation, there's a tendency to go with the most first accessible memory. If some big dark crap flies over my head, I'm not going to go dig deep in, digging deep in my memories to um, to compare seven or eight different models of last time dark things flew over my head and which ones were fun and which were weren't. Muscle memory is going to retrieve the the, the haul ass and run model, you know. <laughs> I'm going to get up out of there. I'll think about it poetically later and might write a limerick and feel better therapeutically. Right then and there, I'm going to go with model A. Now, a lot of people do that if they're under threat and have a high tolerance for a low tolerance for uncertainty, they do it much more quickly. They retrieve that memory of very general memory more quickly. Now, the outcome of that is that you don't really realize how deeply embedded the memory was in different parts. You're just like, oh, tight stomach, flip, flip out. I think uh, people you know? do that automatically with things they don't understand. Yeah. That initiates yeah. the fight or flight response. <laughs> yeah, but they don't take the time to see that the part that was activated right before you got angry at the guy was the hairs on the back of your neck, mm -hmm. the tightness in the stomach. The part that was active that gets activated, and this is uh, alexithymia. Um, you know, no words for emotion. It's basically a precursor to a whole bunch of lower back pain and a lot of weird chronic illnesses that basically people don't know how to sublimate their stuff into healthy. They don't know how to use their words, quote unquote, <laughs> to come full circle with the, with the metaphor pun. Um, but if a person is able to stay in the present moment and not react long enough to and if it's a saber tooth for god's sake run but but if it's not stay long enough to accumulate information that has a a curve under it like on a game show let them give you a couple more notes to the song before you hit the buzzer so to speak you know i'm in a situation i'm talking to a guy Kahneman style i don't like him why because he reminds me of you know, depending on how broad your evaluation, he's a black guy. I don't like him. Mm -hmm. He's reminds me of my uncle who's an a-hole. I don't like him. something about him. I don't like what's really happening is the muscle memories are being retrieved and not necessarily just muscle. The, I'll call them somatic memories. Just, there's a set of memories forming. Last time you were in this situation and you felt this, this happened. You may not even make it to this happened because traumatic memories are encoded without your hippocampus. Okay, now, and this is digging deep into my favorite part of memory. A memory that goes to your hippocampus gets tagged so you realize it's a memory. A memory that is 
recorded when you're dissociated, dissociative identity disorder, that's encoded without a narrative. So outside the context of a self, like an identity, when it comes back, it's not tagged. And therefore, you know, Hulk smash, you're angry in the present. Instead of thinking, you know, I'm experiencing a memory of having been angry the last time some of these contingencies were present, you're angry now, you know, and then so you react in the moment instead of understanding that your calculations might be a little, you're, 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 you're angry in the past. Hopefully that kind of made sense. It's one of the ideas that I really like, but I haven't fully figured out how to articulate as clearly as I like. But part of your memory is realizing that memories, untagged memories become perceptions is what I'm trying to say. They become consciousness right. perceived as present. And it's unfortunate that people draw from their negative memories first, but it is necessary for survival and self-preservation. Sabertooth. <laughs> Sabertooth tiger, yeah. I, well, I would say in an, even today, when you're protecting yourself from certain behaviors that you observe, I think intuitively many of us can identify a sociopath because there's a certain behaviors, gaze, all of those things. But it's funny how broad it can be. It can even come to the point where someone does not trust anyone of the same name. Well, I knew a guy named John once, and he was a complete bastard, so yeah. I don't trust half of the people in this country named John. <laughs> yeah. Now, see, this is where context comes into play, though, because I'll tell you what. Um, the perceived identity, the identity that you have loaded, and this is your, your rich guy not talking to the homeless guy when he's not drunk. The identity that you have loaded affects your assessment of who is and who isn't a sociopath. And when it's a sociopath, what you're actually calculating is this is a member of the out group. And as such, I want to process his signals with a certain degree of detect, ab, detached abstraction. You know, members of my group, when they do something, I'm going to say, well, the circumstances made Fred rob the bank. Fred, do Fred doesn't usually rob a bank because he's my buddy. Now, when I'm watching the news and someone from another group does the very same thing, look at this criminal. You know, it's the, it's the, uh, the state versus trade attribution of, of cause of behavior. In a, very, in a very broad and large sense, I think that's true. On the other hand, even people within groups even within very exclusive groups like secret societies, recognize that some of the members are... Oh, yeah. You're right. You're right. ...are not the cream of the crop. Yeah. You're right. You're right. There's, there's some made-off recognition <laughs> from time to time. And, of course, we view ourselves as parts of, or part of many different groups. And something else that I've spoken to... As sociologists about is how we're creating all of these new subcultures maybe out of some desire to belong to a group and to have some status within the group because of course if I identify with something like my gender well there are three over three billion males on this planet so I'm still not very special if I do that yeah 
I could narrow it down by race or ethnicity, by nationality, but again, it's still a very large group. On the other hand, if I declare myself an elevator enthusiast, and this is a real thing that I stumbled upon, then I'm only one among a couple hundred on a Facebook group. And I can be king of the elevator <laughs> enthusiasts. Yeah, top ten. Yeah. <laughs> and surprisingly, it's not a sexual thing. They just really like elevators. And it might be sexual for some of them. I don't, I don't know. I've ridden in some nice elevators, but I just <laughs> to hit that 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 state where like that's my thing. I, I yeah, I'm not there yet. <laughs> and I, I you know I've ridden in some like some elevators where I can see the whole city on the way up and down. You know, I'm like this is beautiful. I'm gonna get off on my floor now. <laughs> you know, the salience of the experience didn't hit that that spot for me. You know, so yeah, um, yeah. And status is you know, I think marketing is driving that. I think marketing drives that. Hmm. You know, and not entirely marketing drives. Obviously, marketing looks at human nature and looks for opportunity. But a lot of times, like, you know, I, I've been I, I've been reading a good bit of marketing stuff because to me it's fascinating because they go by the numbers and a lot of times they don't worry about the existing value system. It's a little predatory, but it's fascinating. But um. What marketing does is, uh, what at least direct marketing does, is they look at the group and they look for an, an, an unmet need, a, 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 like a feeling that exists in some disparate people. Not desperate, though maybe desperate. Yeah. Some people have a need and say one's in France, one's in New York, one's in, in the Caribbean, one is wherever. And then they put up, um, I think they've called it, in one book I heard referred to as a condensation symbol, something like a bat signal they put up. And then the one of the 200 enthusiasts suddenly, instead of feeling part of a bunch of outgroups, you know, he's less ugly duckling. Suddenly he's one of the swans that just, they go to this website together now and hang out. I think technology has allowed us to do that more effectively, but I think marketing has swooped in and been like, hey, opportunity, to create an identity group and do some identity marketing and make some money. Of course. On the other hand, how would you explain something like the Bronies? Men, That's, yeah. and they're <laughs> over the age of 18 who really like My Little Pony. And, and as far as I know, My Little Pony has not been marketed towards this age group. They do not play advertisements in Halo or... <laughs> Yeah, not everything gets explained, man. What are you asking me? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I, I've seen it. <laughs> I, I'm saying that sometimes these groups, uh, well, more than ever, they seem to emerge spontaneously, which not as the result of marketing, but just as people latching on to them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That, that's all I've got on that. I've seen that, and I, I, I could try to force a little categorical imperative on there and, like, force it into some sort of explanation, but I wouldn't be proud of myself after I did that. <laughs> <laughs> you know? All right, well, we'll put that in the category of I'm not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. Yeah, man. I'm like, well, if you look back on uh, the models that indicate... Oh, hell no. Nah. <laughs> I don't... I've seen that, and I've 
it's one of those things where I've been like, hmm, that does not compute. I, and I'm actually, I'm paraphrasing a bit from the Watchmen comic. I think it's, and I've actually heard it on people explain it this way in one of the columns I read about it. It's a general need to escape the threats that people perceive that seem to be all around us in our post-9-11 world. So it's a sort of infantilization, regression. And also those things are more acceptable now. Of course, in the 50s, you had to be the breadwinner, you had to be the man. Ward Cleaver, you had to take off your belt and beat your kid for yeah. minor infractions, etc. Yeah. And your wife had to come give you your slippers when you came home. But those things have changed, and maybe the general emergence of groups is due to this need for stability, because, of course, that's the other thing that groups provide, a stable persona, because yeah. it is, it's very disorienting to shift from one persona to another if you don't have full-blown dissociative personality disorder. Yeah, yeah. And that uncertainty is a threat. You know, if you threw me out of the tribe and I don't have another tribe to go join, I'm going to die in the wilderness. And I think people do that mentally in a, you know, sort of an ego, ego thing on, on, on the Internet. Mm. You know, where it's like it's not I'm, I'm not thrown out of the tribe in the brick and mortar, but emotionally, you know, my little self-representation is floating out in the middle of nowhere. I need somewhere to, to land where where others resonate with me. Right. And you see a lot of ego on the internet. You all, But people don't talk about the superego. They don't talk about how these miniature societies sprout up. Now, you were talking about the superego, and that I, I was fully curious, so <laughs> I'm open. Well, I'm saying that is frequently left out of analysis the internet. People talk about it as this massive narcissistic phenomenon instead of, well, I mean, outside of professional spheres, they think it's just a big narcissistic phenomenon rather than a sociological one. A projection. <laughs> I, I really think so. I think they wish they were beautiful enough to take selfies and get the likes. And the thing about beauty is if you, you know, what, what's it called? Mere exposure effect. If you take enough selfies and beat them into the collective unconscious, eventually you will aggregate bronies. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've seen some bizarre groups, you know, uh, there's a project I've been working on for the last couple of years where I've been collecting archetypes through pictures and I created some arbitrary, what I initially thought was arbitrary archetypes like one based on the color red, one based on mermaids, one based on violins, one based on mermaids with violins, one based on mermaids in bathtubs. And I just started collecting these pictures. Uh, and I did it on Google Plus because uh, Google adds their own semantic goodness to it because Google is like, Google tries to predict what sense you're trying to make. So I like to sometimes be repeatedly nonsensical to see what it does, you know? 
<laughs> just to see what. And then Google and Pinterest started showing me more mermaid pictures with that in bathtubs. And lo and behold, I found a community of people who collect pictures of mermaids in bathtubs. <laughs> and then another group of people who collect mermaids with violins. And then when you brought them together, it was the biggest party because suddenly they were exchanging pictures of mermaids in bathtubs playing violins. Okay, and deviant art is really good for that. If you want to like bend your brain to see the super ego at work. Now, I read something, I saw a video somewhere and I don't remember who the guy that wrote it. He wrote culture as the prefrontal cortex. Uh, I'll try to look it up and find it, but it was interesting to me because when you, as you're saying now, when people are saying when they're doing all this projection of, oh, the internet is this, the internet is that, the internet is this, I'm like bounded rationality for the win. <laughs> you know, from from within your limited bubble, you're, you're telling me what this thing is. Uh, I did, however, notice that you're projecting your entire shadow function onto the parts that you don't understand. <laughs> your, <laughs> you know? Yes, your bubble and all of your cognitive biases, which... Yeah. I'm sure play some role in how we retrieve memories and of course whenever we retrieve memories we're really recreating them again recognition yeah <laughs> exactly and as time has gone on we've found that memory is extremely fallible in fact it's not reliable at all you can <laughs> dress a guy up in a crazy animal suit furries that's another interesting community but we really don't need to go into that man where are you on the internet bro <laughs> and 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 walk him this was in a book by richard dawkins and a number of other people have used this example walk him on a basketball court and then ask people about what happened and yeah. they may or may not remember this person dressed in a funky animal suit yeah. Because their attention was on the game. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's a working memory phenomenon as well. Um, the people they label as ADHD, and I'll raise my hand because until you're whooping their ass on a test and you're getting a Harvard degree, they want to call you a condition. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, yeah, um, I'll actually see your diagnosis and raise you a bullshit. You know, <laughs> um, working memory plays plays a good bit into this as well as emotional regulation because um when you're dealing with um something like in, in the in the monkey suit experiment you're dealing with people who are counting one process now like they're counting how many times the people are handing back, back the back basketball and then the monkey walked through certain people with have the attention where you know they're designed for saber tooth recognition early <laughs> you know they're like huh gorilla um 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, <laughs> you know? Um, so there's two aspects there. I think uh, they, they they did a study, and I'm going to feel stupid if this was in Barr's book, actually, because uh, I, I listened to his book, but I also listened to, uh, I think, DeHane's book, mm -hmm. and I sometimes mix the content of the two. Um, you have attention blindness, where, as it turns out, attention blindness after introduction of stimulus one followed with a certain time gap by stimulus two, based on the degree of emotional activation of stimulus one, there's an effect on how long the, dis the, the time space, the delta T, before you can spot stimulus two. So to me, these are all working memory phenomena. And if they are working memory phenomena, 
they are therefore tied to a person's identity, a person's sense of self-security, and a person's identification of the degree to which they are safe in any evaluative environment. If I'm surfing the internet in vigilant mode and I'm trolling the hell out of groups to say that I feel better because I'm not a member, you know, then I'm remembering the world that way. Hopefully that all made sense. It made sense in my head, though I know the last part was tangential. It's, <laughs> it's hard to explain cognitive experiments unless, well, any game. I mean, for instance, you could sit down and talk about the rules of chess to someone who has never played or even seen a board, but it's much easier to show them. And they're yeah. much more likely to understand it unless they have some unbelievable Fisher-esque visualization skills. And uh, those were partially innate, but also acquired through unbelievable amounts of practice. Yeah. Which I suppose brings us to the topic of memory mastery without mnemonics as i of the chess playing people i know some i most of them if they're any good have to memorize a lot of openings but they don't necessarily use a mnemonic it's just a visual they see the board and the different configurations and a very good player is going to know thousands, many thousands, of different positions that they're likely to run into. And for me, I don't typically utilize mnemonics, but I generally remember what I read and what needs to be said, and I think that's the result of over-practicing, as well as some innate gift. I believe so. <laughs> I believe so, because... Um... A lot of the stuff that I learned in medical school, there was no mnemonic that I could come up with. And so I was like, okay, I will be repeating this phrase to myself for the next hour. Now, um, when you do that, you burn a certain um, schema into your head. Mm -hmm. And it's not a fun one, but it's there when you need it. <laughs> you know, now you can elaborate on the schema as well, mm -hmm. where I would imagine that uh, with a certain amount of practice, in chess games, a person is able to anchor emotional, emotional, well, anchor emotional anchors with yeah. with in a chess game. They're like, okay, I lost this game, you know. And they say that regret is the best way to update your counterfactual memories. If I had done this in this position, mm -hmm. now if if these uh, guys, if these um, experts have expert level schema, uh, schemata, I don't know, one of the two have, you know, with and saying schema schemata is another example of that very thing I'm talking about. That's funny. But where when I'm pulling up a memory, if it's something that I don't spend a lot of time doing, I have sort of a broad general memory, uh, you know, and yet if I spend a lot of time in that domain, I have sub branches and sub nooks. And I think chick, chick, chick gender spotting was one of the examples that I read that you could train yourself into where you can do it really fast. You flip them over, you're like male, female, male, female, you know. But you break up these branches where your brain is able to differentiate. And remember I talked about riverbanks versus robbing other banks. You, you activate the multiple schema, but as an expert, one of the what people would not would overlook as cues in perception makes it into your perception gets calculated as one of the features that 
lowers the likelihood of the other models being the model that's most relevant at the time. So these guys have like a thousand openings in there, you know, and they've hammered them in, but each opening has a story that goes with it. This was the opening where I got trounced in front of a thousand people. The lights were hot. I had an omelet that day. I probably will never eat an omelet again. Opening number 997.3, <laughs> you know? It's funny that sometimes chess positions or even things that are very abstract, say the look of a paragraph, can unconsciously invoke images or sensations. I mean, if you say that a paragraph, a person's writing style, for instance, Herman Melville's, reminded me of sort of disjointed lines needles, and that might have something to do with the harpoon from Moby Dick, but this was Bartleby that I was reading. Obviously, that's incomprehensible to other people, but somehow it makes sense to me. What about the fact that you're ridiculously smart? Does that count to come into play? The people who sit around and do a lot of metacognition have very different models than people who just sit around and try to get through life. Yes, it is uh, It is a luxury to have the time to do these things. And of course, there's the genetic aspect of it. And we have people like Sidus and Goethe who had, and Tesla who had these unbelievable memories. And Tesla and Sidus were also... I mean, Tesla trained himself. Sidus had instruction from his father. Uh, but the nature-nurture debate is a little worn out, I suppose, and there's no need to go into it. It's a false dichotomy, especially yep. as we understand gene expression better. Oh, so metacognition and memory. I feel we're going into some dark territory, and I regret not having any LSD on hand. <laughs> In fact, that is the one thing I managed to write down. Well, I, one of two things I managed to write down after 18 hours was I keep out meta-ing myself. <laughs> I love that visual. I love that visual. Don't do drugs, kids. <laughs> Basically. Or at least not without a pencil nearby. <laughs> I, pre I prefer pens, but so <laughs> metacognition or metacognition. Yeah, I'm trying to see, think of how is that related to memory exactly. You have, I suppose, you would be aware of the different states that you have and how these states affect the way that you bring information to you, and how these states are related to one another. Every memory, this is the model that I use, every memory can be appreciated from either within the memory or as if you were an observer in the memory. Um, it turns out that even with prospective memory, you're more likely to activate your implementation intentions, which are slightly more accessible memories than other types of memories for some reason, intentions are. You're more likely to activate them if when you're doing your prospective memory, you do it sort of in a first person subjective. You see yourself in the environment you see yourself in the car now 
this is manifested by encoding the memories um, in, in there's different dimensions to this that I've seen as far as applying metacognition to linguistics. I've seen that if you're using, and I can't even think of the example, and I think it's louder than words that had this, where if you say a sentence in a way so that the drawer, a person visualizes a drawer closed versus if they visualize the drawer open and closing and you talk to them about retrieving something from the drawer and visualizing that, the person who had the drawer partially open is going to get the thing from the visual faster, you know, will activate that memory faster than the person who had the drawer closed and was opening it. Same thing is if you have someone visualize a car going by and ask them a question about something in the car versus you have them visualize themselves riding in the car. Yeah. So to me, metacognition is being aware that there is the opportunity to encode the memory from within the car. There's the memory opportunity to encode the memory as someone watching the car go by. <laughs> you know, there is the memory, there's opportunity to remember the memory as the car. You know, you have these stances, you step outside the memory. You realize that by wording the memory differently, you encode the experience differently. You realize that you're using these words to encode the memory. You realize when you're encoding the memory with muscle memory. It's just, you step outside. Um, I want to say it's the phenomenological, I can never pronounce that word, turn, where you, you, you say, okay, that is consciousness. Well, you're experiencing consciousness too. Yeah, but just for a minute, look at that consciousness in that head. Let's, let's look at that one. And let's say that whatever we notice about that one and we infer from that applies to ours as well. And then we can, we can road test it on me later, but let's step outside it and let's, you know, take the intentional stance or whatever. Do you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, it's not a fully conscious memory, what I'm saying yet, but the ability to realize that these things exist and to jump to the level of abstraction where you're able to do sort of a third person subjective comparison of these things happening in someone's head without arguing to the, with them that because you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. To me, that's metacognition. Right. I, I we are getting closer to measuring consciousness. I, I don't want to make it sound as though we've unwrapped the bow and have the present ready just yet, but I'm sure within the next 20 or 30 years we'll get pretty close to figuring it out, seeing it. I, I think the other important part for mnemonic metacognition would be figuring out optimal states for how you want to perform at any given time. And of course, there's a, the physiological things to take into consideration, like how high or low your blood sugar is or whatever. Uh, but without getting too wrapped up in all that, we have to think about the future, think about what we're going to do and how we want to be or have to be at any given moment. How do I approach this problem? Well, you can approach any problem, say a scientific problem, you can think of it like an engineer. You can think of it as a theoretician. As I was talking to Gennady about last night, the problem of aging, 
to think about it as a theoretician is just insane because it's a complex system and there will probably be no big fixes in the near future so we're looking for we're looking for big fixes but we're also looking for small band-aids and the same applies to economics the same applies to neuroscience or to anything where you're dealing with an ungodly amount of information I agree and have nothing clever to say <laughs> yeah I agree I agree and you know I think uh, well, a lot can, of times roles come into play. You yeah. know, some people need to pretend they have a solution or need the cognitive closure of the busy work of doing something about a problem and don't want you to tap them on the shoulder and be like, see that big sticker that says intractable? Well, there's, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with models. Of course, we all yeah. have to use models either implicitly or explicitly. And in fact, even incorrect models, like when people thought of electricity as behaving like a fluid, can lead to discoveries, like batteries. Yeah. If we had always thought of electricity as what it really is, somebody probably would have made a battery, but they might not have attempted it as early. Yeah. Because how can you store something that's constantly moving? That's that's the whole jumping metaphors thing, though. You know, I, I jump my metaphors sometimes at random, <laughs> and and you know, I've gotten to the point where I've accepted that as my voice, and you know, like a lot of times, like my Facebook post today, I wrote something. I start off with not throwing out the baby with the bathwater, and then I ended up with a a stew metaphor, and figured go with it. Did a little contextual blending. It was like, okay, baby stew. Why not? You know. It's it's not being reactive and too judgmental when you have a set of ambiguous metaphors forming that allow us that allows us I think allows us to come up with solutions that emerge from these conceptual blends. It's um, the the comfort with the fact that okay, I have these two things. There's some cognitive dissonance because I know they don't go together like this. Okay, let's try the lion head and the man body. Oh, that's just creepy. Let's try the man head, lion body. Mm, a little two Thundercats, you know. Um, and and you try which one, and you see which one feels good at the moment. And that's the art aspect of it. The the intuitive, the hmm, I like that aesthetically. Let me run that by some friends, and they're like, okay, Pervo, you're drawing cats cats with women's bodies. That's intriguing can i get a copy so i can be offended in private you know it's you know and then you have a club and it comes um, back to the furries so yeah yeah you end up with this thing that hits the hits a point in the collective unconscious that several other people had visited and kind of liked a an elevator you know until you bring it up hey guy i really like elevators me too no guy i really 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 like elevators Yo, man, me too. I've never told anyone this, but I could spend a whole day in the elevator. Dude, me too. You know who else? I've noticed spending a lot of time in the elevator. Now you got two guys, and then they find Fred. And Fred is like, hey, guys, Fred, what are you doing? I am riding the elevator. Hey, Fred, earlier we noticed you were riding the elevator. Yeah, I needed to get something. What, Fred? Okay, guys, I admit I really like the elevator. Now you got three. And now you have semantic gravity because they're going to come up with a language to discuss their affinity for elevator riding and they're going to come up with a game of the ranking system to show who is more passionate about 
their elevator riding as evidenced by them knowing the lingo better. You know? And next thing you know, you have an epidemic. <laughs> and that ties in with the concept of linguistic capital from Boyju. I don't know that one, but you're going to have me look it up. Because as much as I like wordplay, I'm going to look it up. Well, you have different types of capital. Not all financial. Linguistic capital is knowing the language and knowing how to speak. Of course, if you don't know what an aria is, you're not going to be very popular at the opera house. Yeah. Unless you're really, really rich. But that that tends to trump everything. Yeah, yeah you've shifted the capital. <laughs> you decide what is capital. Yeah, you've compensated in a different way. Ah, uh, well, I think it would be good to talk about how your memory model ties in with problem solving in general. Uh meta memory, <laughs> uh, which is a word I've just been digging into a bit, and. Let's, so let's go over to metacognition. And by problem just... solving, I mean both, say, a math problem, but also intrapersonal and interpersonal yeah. problems. Yeah. Um, so one of the things, and I'm currently working on a book, Break the Cage MD, which initially was going to be subtitled A Physician's Guide to Transcendental Self-Medication, <laughs> but it's looking like it's going to be more about general life problem solving, and I don't know how that's going to affect the titling. Um, but one of the things that happens is uh, I stack the models. I go, okay, you have your recognition and representation model. When you apply this model to situations, when you walk into a situation, you're like, this is a situation in which I'm having an argument with someone. This is a situation in which I am purchasing a pizza. You know, you pull up the memory of the last time you did said thing. Mm -hmm. Now, being aware of stuff like chunking and functional fixedness lets you know that when I pull up my pizza buying model, I pull up, in addition to just the event, certain roles are chunked in that model. Therefore, I am pizza purchaser, and this is pizza delivery guy if I'm doing it by... Um, I opened my door to get it. Or if this is a, I went into the shop, this is waitress, I am still pizza purchaser. You know, now, if people get caught up in functional fixedness and they pull up either, one of the ways that I like to think of improving problem solving is that when you have a mistake that happens, you pull up the, your recognition module, the subliminal aspect, you know, you use regret to create a teachable moment. You're like, you know what? My model last time I tried to use it didn't get me the desired outcome. Mm. Let me reevaluate my model at the level of recognition of the model. What are the features? Maybe I misread the model. Maybe I came in there and I thought it was a pizza ordering situation. It was a robbery of a pizza place and I got I got shot up and didn't get my pepperoni. You know? <laughs> so so recognition of the event is one layer of problem solving. Second is recognition of the perceived role that people see you playing in the event. If I walk into the hospital and I have a doctor suit on um, and I head towards like some of the private areas, the, the doctor's rooms, and I scan my card, they no one bothers me. I, you know, they actually clear the way in the hallway. That's really neat. If I come back in after I've been hanging out with my boys and I've got club wear or whatever, and I go down this dark private back hallway to the doctor's lounge, I get stopped eight to 12 times, sometimes in less friendly ways than others. You know, um, being aware of the role you are perceived to play 
and the degree of functional fixedness of the person who is trying to make meaning of the situation and their need for you to be in that other role is a large part of social problem solving according to the, the way that I'm writing these models in my mind. So that's where the functional fixedness, that's where the chunking comes into play. If this person has a model, uh, one of the big model clashes you can see is cops and minority communities. You know, they're retrieving a model very quickly. They're perceiving to be threat. Their life is, they're fearing for their life. And as such, they're not pulling up three models and doing rapid comparison as to whether this is statistically the black guy who is the young poet in, in this community where I know there's a lot of shooting and drugs. Yeah. You can, you can be like, oh, darn cop, evil, whatever. Or you could be like human in situation where life is perceived to be in danger, ergo pulling up quick models. Um, you apply the problem solving of teaching the person other possible contexts to retrieve in that emotional state. Mm -hmm. And you do that during regret because when you're in regret, you're able to pull up the counterfactuals and be like, had I done this differently? Had I done this differently? Mm -hmm. And you remind the person that instead of making pulling up the self-regulating counterfactuals, the ones that make me feel better about the situation, do some, I think it's called upward counterfactual or it might be additive counterfactual. A lot of times I don't memorize the words. I just like the concept. If I look at the situation and I say to myself, instead of dwelling in the past, let me look at a goal that I have as one of my desired outcome outcomes. Let me pull that mistake and transpose it into a prospective memory and adjust it such that the features which were limiting behaviors or beliefs in my past interaction with that situation are no longer present. Next time I'll wear a nicer suit. Next time I'll be politer. Next time I, you know, will hold my opinion until the entire sentence is out. Just whatever happened in the last situation that made it crappy, let me store my memory at the level of abstraction where I recognize the situation better. Let me store my roles chunked within that memory in a way such that I'm able to play both the role of the person in the lower socioeconomic, the, the higher socioeconomic, the, the, the um, aggressor and, and the person that was subjugated. Let me look at different ways the situation could have played out and have them in somewhat accessible memory as implementation intentions so my brain automatically activates those behaviors. You know, And this is all kind of chunked down in how I approach stuff. And I try to write them out in such a way that people don't feel like I'm trying to erase their entire memory all at once. But the, the Russian nesting doll syndrome, you know, it happens across your life. When you hit a situation, the more sub elements you're able to label as relevant when you encode your schema for later recognition, the more effective you'll be in differentiating nuances that make you more able to effectively solve that problem next time. Yeah. And it takes being present so that you're getting the real feedback from the situation instead of being instead of misperceiving an untagged past memory is what is happening now. Instead of being instead of being in the instead of instead of two instead of instead of instead of being in the present moment, you are in, in, instead of being in the future moment and in a state of worry and perceiving that as your present risk of the situation, recognizing multiple possible outcomes and therefore being a state of mind where you have an escapable threat, which is a whole different way of thinking. 
You know, these are all different. Give a person a compass to be able to make value-based decisions instead of environmentally mediated decisions. There's lots of sub elements that you have to learn one at a time and that you have to learn to be mindful enough to give yourself enough time in the situation to grab the hammer and the screwdriver and to be like, eh, drop this one. And even further, after you've hammered it a couple of times, if that's not solving the problem, reminding yourself that you did indeed have a screwdriver, eh, let me try the screwdriver, let me put down the hammer. You know, these are decision-making processes within problem solving. Hopefully that was less muddy outside of my head than it was inside. <laughs> it was. In part. I, they may have to rewind and listen to it again, but hopefully they were paying attention. Were you? <laughs> I broke the fourth wall. <laughs> oh, a, yeah, I, I suppose you can break the fourth wall in an audio medium. Nothing prevents what is break? What is breaking the fourth wall? Acknowledging that there's an audience. Okay, okay. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I, it's more applicable to fiction when people are in character. Okay. So it's when they, they look into the camera and address the viewing audience right. about what's going on. Which okay, is, okay. of course, a big TV no-no. You are not supposed to look directly into the camera as I am right now. <laughs> but it's a there's a specific some people use that as part of their voice though they do and there are some shows you'll notice my friend commented when my sister was watching the show weeds that people were frequently looking into the camera so it is not a hard and fast rule anymore and with some of the workplace comedies they look directly into the camera because they're acting as though they're being filmed. But okay. that's not really relevant. <laughs> sorry, to sorry. Any... I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't not. You were like, Manny, meet Rabbit Hole. And I was like, pack a lunch, let's go. <laughs> I, I was in, sorry. We are okay. almost at the hour and 30 minute mark. Yeah. Uh, I think we've covered most everything we wanted to. Yeah, man, I believe so. Memory is fascinating. It's the main thing is to approach it with curiosity and not expect it to be all formulaic. It's to be curious and to do some introspection, or Jung would say some willed introspection. No, that was Joseph Campbell, actually. <laughs> One of the two. But go in there, see what's in there. It's yours. I, I <laughs> you care. There is one thing I mentioned earlier about the memory palace. And my contention as far as memory goes, and of course this is a personal opinion and it's not backed by much of anything, although I'm sure I could find sources, but you can find sources for virtually everything and you can twist them to suit your ends, is the best way to remember things is to lay a firm conceptual framework. So you have this metaphorical bookshelf or palace in which everything goes and you know how it is related to everything else. And I hate to do this, to take um, things at the microscopic level and apply them to the macroscopic, but that's really how neurons function. They're connected to each other, and they're connected in some way to every other neuron by 
two or three degrees. It doesn't take from to touch one neuron to any other. And of course, you have a lot of them. 80 billion was an estimate I saw recently. So they're extremely interconnected. So that's how your brain works, and that's how a lot of AI programs work, is this connectionist approach. Yeah. And obviously the models that emerge are somehow related to these connections. I think that the best way to remember things, of course, is to understand them. And understanding is even more vague than the word memory, or I would say even the word consciousness. Unless you yeah. consider understanding an integral part of consciousness, so then it remains equally mysterious. I think it's more mysterious, right? <laughs> yeah. Because I, I, I think understanding implies almost an ability to steer the consciousness, whereas a lot of people have some conscious experience and they're like, you don't know whether you're coming or going. Yeah, and the truth is even animals are conscious, but they have they aren't aware of the fact they're conscious. Yeah. Whereas understanding undoubtedly involves some understanding or some realization that you're thinking, that you are a thinking being, and that your <laughs> thoughts work in these ways. Yeah. Meta. And it has to be meta, and you have to keep out metaing yourself while you are tripping balls and eating <laughs> chocolate cocoa pebbles, and your friend says to you, what is that you have there? How are you eating? How can you do this right now? And you say, these cocoa pebbles are a thousand tiny islands, asteroids floating in the cosmic sea. And I am eating them all, <laughs> and, I, and they are delicious islands. Well, there are, there aren't. I don't know of many people who eat while they're on acid, but some of us manage to. <laughs> Dude, I'd be afraid, I'd be afraid to consume anything for fear of what it would do down line. You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I definitely wouldn't want any hot sauce. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's not the that's not the trip you want. <laughs> All right. Then let me get us off the record. <laughs>